The Gist is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code GIST, that's G-I-S-T, at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, June 16th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So the Game of Thrones finale was last night, apparently. I don't know. I watched a bunch of episodes. I have read the book, so it's okay. You're not going to spoil me in terms of plot development. But, you know, how exactly will the beheading go down? Will it be a left-to-right incision? This is the stuff I need to know. So I'm worried about it being spoiled. But I found I've come across this almost foolproof way to avoid all the fears of spoiling. You ready for it? It's so simple. No one will spoil TV shows. You don't have to worry about it. You could go through life without picking up a snippet of conversation about the TV show you're into if you do one simple thing. If you don't want your TV show spoiled, watch terrible TV shows. Watch TV shows that nobody watches. According to, I don't know, some site. Here are the worst five shows of the 2014 season. One is called Selfie. And the picture, just the picture for the show, shows seven faces, an ethnically diverse cast, and they're all crammed in there as if they're taking a selfie. And they all have these obnoxious looks on their faces. No one's going to watch this show, therefore I'm going to watch the show, and it's not going to get spoiled for me. Another thing called Bad Judge, don't have to worry about spoilers for that. Scorpion, don't have to worry about spoilers for that. There's some How I Met Your Mother thing called Christella, don't have to worry about spoilers for that. Or wait a minute, is that the A to Z one? It doesn't matter. All these shows are going to be terrible, therefore they'll never be be spoiled. To this day, I'm only four episodes into John from Cincinnati, and no one has spoiled it for me. That is my advice for you. Today on the show, we'll talk to Dahlia Lithwick about the Supreme Court terms ending, and we'll also, in the spiel, remember Casey Kasem. It is far from a hagiography. I'm not, I'm not going to eviscerate Casey Kasem. I'm also not going to do a good impression. I'm warning you there. But now, let's examine the situation in Iraq and the march of the forces of ISIS. Thousands of armed Shiites paraded through the streets of Baghdad over the weekend. This was to assert strength in the face of the rampages of ISIS. ISIS is the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. They are Sunni may have been horribly successful. ISIS claims to have slaughtered 1,700 Shia captives. They certainly have taken the cities of Mosul and Tikrit. They've knocked over some banks and are now called by NBC News the world's richest terrorist group. So the United States must intervene, say many Republicans in Congress. Other observers, like Walter Russell Mead, who often writes for the Wall Street Journal, says ISIS is more fragile than they look. It's true. So far, their gains have been in cities and towns that were pro-Sunni. Well, joining us to discuss it is Adam Garfinkel. Garfinkel was a speechwriter for both secretaries of state in the George W. Bush administration. It's Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice. He's now the editor of the National Interest magazine. Hello, Adam. Hi. I'm uh, happy to be here. So I'm going to play you a quote from Michael McCall, who's Texas representative. He's the chairman of the House Committee on Homeland Security, who's speaking on ABC's This Week. Uh, I talked to Ambassador Crocker yesterday. He said that this is the greatest threat, national security threat, since... 9-11, Al-Qaeda owns more territory, more resources. This is not some down-the-road prospect. What do you think of that, Adam Garfinkel? ISIS, the greatest national security threat since 9-11. 
it's a pretty serious matter. You've got a, an Al-Qaeda sort of self-invented franchise, potentially in control of a lot of territory, uh, straddling two states, and perhaps in future um, burgeoning into Jordan and into Saudi Arabia. So it's, it's well, it rel- relatively well-armed, thanks to all the American arms that the Iraqis, uh, Iraqi soldiers dropped on their way out of the, the battle zone. Um, it's also worth noting that these guys are not unemployed riffraff. A lot of them are pretty literate. A lot of them can use cranes and earth movers, as they showed when they took over Mosul. A lot of them used to be members of the, uh, the former Iraqi military and intelligence services under Saddam Hussein. So this is a reasonably capable group. But do we even know if ISIS has real genuine ambitions to export terror throughout the world like al-Qaeda does? No, we don't know that. And really what we're seeing, by the way, uh, although it's, it looks new to us because we have very uh, short historical memories, what we're really seeing is, is, a, form, is a form of religiously infused nation building. Uh, many years ago, a guy named Anthony Wallace wrote a piece called Revitalization Movements. He was a cultural anthropologist, and he described movements like this. And there are two others that I think people, a lot of people do uh, have some awareness of. One was the original uh, Islamic creation back in the 7th century. What Muhammad did to unify the tribes of Arabia looked very similar to what, what we're seeing today. Uh, it was a religious calling that overrode a tribal and, and clan divisions and grouped larger numbers of people around a religious banner. Uh, we saw, uh, again, something very similar to this um, in the 12th century. Uh, in the 8th century, uh, there was the Muslim um, invasion of Spain, the Almoravid Empire, right, near 711. But then a couple of hundred years later, in the 12th century, some Berbers, the Almohad Empire, conquered the Muslims who had already conquered Spain. You know, some people who've looked at ISIS have said they have some relatively easy gains, and now that they do have $450 million or whatever, you can't discount them. But they had some relatively easy gains, and a bunch of the security forces of Iraq said to themselves, "Uh, I don't think that if I take up arms against them, that's a winning side for me, and they fled. How inspired will ISIS even be to march on Baghdad? I don't think they want to march on Baghdad. I, I... I think what you're seeing here is essentially a uh, um, jutting out kind of tactic where they're saying to the Maliki government that one Sunni desert tribesman is worth 100 cowardly Shia villagers in a fight. That's what they're proving again. This is Iraqi lore going back hundreds of years. And what they're basically saying is, you know, uh, we can take Baghdad if we really want to. Uh, We're not going to, but stay the hell out of our, our part of the country. Don't come here. I think what they're really trying to do is draw the Shia militias into their neck of the woods so they can slaughter them. So doesn't that argue less for U.S. intervention than uh, some of the loudest no, voices? We're not talking about a major American military campaign on the ground. We're talking about air power, uh, which, is, which, which ISIS can't defend against in any, in any significant fashion, unless we're dumb enough to use helicopters. We'd be in basically on the same side as Iran if we did that, because the Al-Quds Guard, the Revolutionary Guards, are in Baghdad right now protecting the regime. It's probably not a great idea to get, get in bed in Iraq on the same side as the Iranians because, you know, the Saudis and the, uh, the other Gulf countries and, and the Jordanians and, and the Egyptians, a lot of other Sunni associates of the United States would have serious laundry problems if we did that. They're having laundry problems already. By laundry problems, you mean soiling thereof? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, now I get um, it. On the other hand, uh, there is something to be said for, uh, for bombing concentrations of these people just to, just to kill a lot of them. Um, uh, it's an attractive proposition, but if it were me, I wouldn't do it. The only way we can we can um, actually uh, salvage anything out of this mess is if we do it in such a way to get rid of Maliki, who has been a sectarian asshole ever since uh, he was able to, and get somebody like Iyad Alawi or some all-national leader 
into power. That's the only way of saving Iraq as a state, and I think it's probably even too late. Uh, to do that. I think there is a knee-jerk reaction among some in conservative circles, certainly many elected members of uh, Congress, to say this is happening on Obama's watch and therefore he's being weak and the United States' prestige is at stake. And, you know, they want to bomb just to show they're tougher than Obama or to lay the blame uh, for what's happening with the administration. And that makes me nervous. Do you see that that phenomenon's going on? Look, you're right. You're right to be nervous. This administration uh, is the most avariciously political administration I've ever seen in foreign policy. It's, it's, all, it's even a little bit worse than the Clinton administration, which made all of its decisions on foreign policy based on partisan domestic concerns. Now, everybody does this. Republicans did do it, too. And the closer Karl Rove was to George W. Bush, the, the Republicans also did it. I mean, there is this general perception in the world that the United States is having a Greta Garbo moment, you know, just wanting to be alone. Uh, and it's not good because it, it stimulates a cascade of revisionist behavior. Uh, in Asia, in Europe, in the Middle East. And so it's true that the administration has been has been basically trying to buy short-term peace, um, uh, but with a liability of actually letting problems metastasize and get worse, whether on its watch or on the next uh, presidential administration's watch. You know, so that we should therefore bomb somebody just because, you know, um, our credibility is in the crapper. That's not a very wise reason to use military force. It's even a less wise reason to put American soldiers in harm's way. Adam Mars Garfinkel is an editor, speechwriter, and professor. He is the editor of The American Interest. Thank you very much, Adam. Oh, you're welcome. Good questions as usual. And this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, or online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code GIST at checkout. Now, this is why the GIST and Squarespace are a good pairing, because the things that matter to Squarespace matter to us. Simple and elegant. I don't actually, that doesn't really apply, does it? No. Okay, but still, beautifully designed. We're a little, actually, a little rough around the edges. Maybe. Drag and drop content. Now, that is true. Every day, I have a big wall with all my ideas, and I try to think about what I should do. And I go, and I drag, and I Judea, and I just drop all my thoughts into the radio. So drag and drop content, and me and Squarespace, we really get along. They have 24-7 support through live chat and email located in New York City. Dublin, and now Portland, Oregon. They said, what are the most expensive places in the world to staff people? And those are the places they've decided. Maybe um, the top floor of a luxury hotel in San Francisco is next. Who knows? But this is their commitment. They have the kind of people who really are into good websites and can give you advice about yours. Plans start at $8 a month. They include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. That's squarespace.com slash the gist 10% off if you enter the gist code we thank squarespace for sponsoring the gist squarespace a better web starts with your website the supreme court's term is ending so we're going to bring on our supremely talented supreme court reporter dahlia lithwick who covers the court all courts for slate hello dahlia hello there a lot of these cases they seem all tied up with new technology and applying old laws or established laws to new technology. So there is a Facebook case, there is a cell phone case, there's that Aereo case. What do you want to talk about there? I think it's 
quite true that one of the things the court is scrambling to do is apply old doctrine to new technology. So you have this Aereo case that's going to also be one of the ones that comes down in the next couple of weeks, and that just has to do with using new technology to transmit TV signals to uh, subscribers. The court had to figure out, A, what that was, and B, how do you apply it to the rule that used to apply to Betamax? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we also have a huge, huge cell phone case. I mean, one of the big, big cases we're waiting on in the next two weeks has to do whether the cops can search you if they stop you without a warrant, if they can search your cell phone. And so the arguments in that case were sort of, should we treat cell phones like a phone or should we treat cell phones like, well, the other side of that being? The totality of your home office in your pocket. I mean, if you believe that the framers didn't want the cops to come in and search your address book and your diary uh, and, you know, every single thing you had in your desk, then certainly I think there is a plausible argument that that's all contained on your phone now and the cops need a warrant to look at it. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that was really interesting in that case is watching the different justices think quite differently about what's on a cell phone, in some ways predicated on how they use their technology, and, and, you know, some of them are 80. And didn't Justice Breyer even said, I don't know how to turn it on? (laughs) Right. I mean, there's always a lot of punchlines every term about how the justices, (laughs) you know, don't know what's going on. Although I have to say this term, I was pretty impressed with their tech Yeah, acumen. But it is the greatest ongoing sitcom. So let me ask you this broader question. It's good to have, well, precedent's an important thing in the law, and it's good to have organizing principles. But do you think the best way to decide these cases is to basically say, should we consider a cell phone a phone, or should we consider a home office? Do we make the analogy to this set of circumstances or that set of circumstances, as opposed to sort of wading in and finding a different principle? Well, you know, one of my favorite exchanges that ever happened in this light was between Justice Alito and Justice Scalia, who we tend to think, you know, Sam Alito and Antonin Scalia, you know, in lockstep on most things. Uh, But in one case where they were trying to think through these new technology questions, you know, Justice Alito and Justice Scalia got into a fight about, really, are we going to try to figure out, like, what James Madison thought of the GPS? And it was clear that even as between the two of them, they couldn't figure out if they're supposed to be applying the, you know, big principles that the framers set forth, or if they're just supposed to be creating workable rules so that people know whether their cell phones are protected or not. So I think it really does raise this question of, you know, what is the court's mission here? Is it to figure out what Madison would do with an aerial antenna or your GPS, or is it to do something different? And I think the pragmatic answer, Mike, is what the court has to do is create rules, because what they often do in these cases is say, oh, we don't know, it's so complicated, it's too early, you know, if we create a big sweeping rule, some stuff is going to happen, and that might be bad. But, you know, in the absence of that, there's even more confusion. So I think one of the things the court has to do is just be bold enough to say, heck, we don't know, and technology's changing really fast, and we still can't figure out what a pager is, but right. here's a rule. Right, so there's the Aereo case, and the whole reason Aereo is set up like it is, and let's not get into it, but just know this, it's this incredibly complicated system where you could get TV over your internet. But the way to do it is these tiny little like TiVos in the sky. And the only reason the company sets itself self up like this is to comply with the rules. So either the court can look at it and parse every bit of it and say, yes, it does apply with previously existing rules or it doesn't. Or you could do what you're saying. Take more of a big swing and say, 
either it makes sense to allow a company like Aereo can, to do this, or it doesn't make sense. And the other laws that they were or weren't complying with aren't as important as if it makes sense or it doesn't make sense. That's it. And, and you know, one way to think about it is the court has to always look at these cases and say, is this a sneaky workaround that mm-hmm. exists to bypass, you know, sensible laws? Or is this brilliant innovation that we need to reward? And those are really hard questions. You know, the court almost shut down uh, uh, Betamax. You know, I mean, there are ways in which uh, for the court sometimes to take a big swing is to shut down huge areas of technological innovation. And so there's a risk. But I think one of the things we've seen time and again is that when the court says uh, we're going to decide not to decide, uh, and, you know, hopefully technology will either make this decision obsolete or clarify at least where we're going, that also raises its own host of questions. So this is a little bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't proposition. Let's talk about one last thing that goes on this week historically. Often justices announce their retirement this week. Here we have Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She's 81, is that right? 81. 81. In good health, you know. You know. You know <laughs> well, her. for a two-time cancer survivor. Right, right. You know her pretty well, and she knows you. I could see that it's a conflict in that this is a lifetime appointment. She has it within her to be great at her job. And yet I was just reading in, I think it's Upshot, the blog on the New York Times, about how liberal justices are far less strategic in when they step down. And the reason that all these decisions are 5-4, a large part of that is that conservative justices have timed their stepping down so that their successor can be appointed by a conservative president. Liberals haven't done that as much. What are your thoughts on the conundrum she faces? Well, you know, I think a lot of very, very well-respected liberal thinkers have been pushing her very hard to step down. And we've heard, you know, several calls from people, you know, who I respect enormously just saying, oh, my God, you're 81, you've had cancer twice, and you need uh, Obama to replace you. And she has been pretty fierce and very outspoken in saying, you know what, no. Uh, and not being willing to be pushed and not willing to be pressured. And I think if the nut of the question is, and the way you framed it, I think that's right, is she a strategic thinker or is she someone who's just going to accidentally forget to retire? I think she's the most strategic thinker on the liberal wing of the court. In other words, I think this this is not some absent-minded professor who's just, whoops, you know, now I'm going to be replaced um, uh, by Mitt Romney. I think she's pretty savvy about what she's doing and the landscape. And so the notion that undergirds a lot of the criticism of her is, does she not realize how high the stakes are? I think of anybody on the left wing of the court, she realizes what the stakes are. She's just made the determination that she can hang in for a couple more years and that more urgently, and this is important, Mike, I think she brings to the court something that the other left justices don't bring. I think she's really found her voice in the last couple of years, this clarion liberal voice that's kind of eroding away over time. And I think she may feel that she has important work to do. And I think she certainly feels that she could not be replaced by someone who has a background as an ACLU litigator. She will be replaced by someone to her right, even if it's Obama replacing her, possibly someone far to her right. And there's a cost to that. Yeah, she's she's at the top of her game. Yep. Yep. Dahlia Lithwick, her insight is always valuable. Although I think we could all say that no matter what happens, she's not going to be replaced by Mitt Romney. <laughs> right. Himself. No, no. Right. Right. Uh, I was trying to think of who the nominee is today. Ted like, Cruz. Let's say Ted is Cruz. Is it Ted Cruz? No, nah, let's just like that's a, that's the nightmare scenario, right? <laughs> <laughs> for, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> Dahlia Lithwick covers the Supreme Court for Slate. Thank you, Dahlia. All right. Thanks, Mike. 
And now the spiel. Casey Kasem, radio legend, is dead. Casey Kasem was important without being interesting. And that, I think, is kind of important, too. Let's hope it's interesting as I talk about Casey Kasem. I don't subscribe to the prohibition against speaking ill of the dead, but really, I don't have anything scathing or condemnatory to say about Casey Kasem. I think the Washington Post gets it right when they described his American Top 40 radio show as benign and anodyne. And it had to be to be that popular. The purpose of most of the obits about Casey Kasem was for anyone who spent a Sunday afternoon in a car or purposefully listened on a beanbag chair in a wood-paneled rec room to say, oh, Casey Kasem, yeah, him. He was tied to our memories of the first time we heard Hot-Blooded or Physical or I Love a Rainy Night. Man, that was the song for me. I Love a Rainy Night is forever mediated or entirely mediated by Casey Kasem. Some horrible music over the years was proudly heralded by Casey Kasem. It's by a four-man, two-woman band from Sheffield, England, whose musicians play just one type of instrument, the very versatile electric synthesizer. With the eighth biggest song of the year, here's the Human League and Don't You Want Me. And that was the point of Casey Kasem. No insights, no critical thought, no championing of certain artists. I read in the New York Times he didn't even like rock and roll. I saw him on this list of great DJs. I saw him referred to, I just did it, as a legendary DJ. He wasn't legendary. He was extremely familiar. His show lasted 40 years, so he was extremely successful and he was good at what he did. But what he did was tick off a list crafted by a statistical formula and give you a brief bio of the artist. He also made a big deal about the list itself. He talked up the history of the top 40 or how some song was setting a record for most weeks this or highest chart debut that. Those charts would come undone by the time Casey Kasem was done. In fact, the splintering of pop music propelled him to record two different versions of the top 40 by the end. One jettisoned songs thought to displease adult contemporary audiences. And the way he talked into songs, that was very old-fashioned, too. I remember listening to him in, I don't know, 1981, 1982, and he teased up, next in the countdown, a man who changed his name to make money. Oh, okay, I'll stay tuned. I mean, what else do I have to do on a Saturday afternoon? Read a choose-your-own-adventure book? Anyway, and now a man who changed his name to make money, Eddie Money. You know, you can only get burned so often with teases like that, like... Here's a song that topped the charts in Australia, Canada, Sweden, and right here in the USA. Its title is a word known to magicians the world over. A word used to cast spells and to pull rabbits out of hats. All right, all right, I'll bite. What's this magician word? The seventh biggest song of the year, Abracadabra by Steve Miller. Abracadabra. Like the song it was introducing, those words don't exactly reach out and grab you. It was stuff like that, like those Pat stories that always turned on the moment of faux revelation, like he was the Paul Harvey of the 45, that struck me without even knowing it. I was less than 10 years old, maybe just seemed insincere and distancing. So I remember loving Howard Stern the first time I heard him talk about legendary DJs. Same same time period, early 80s. And he would mock Casey Kasem, those hokey long-distance dedications. And sometimes Stern would have bands on and literally fact-check the stuff Casey Kasem would say, stories about the band's names or early gigs. And the bands would always say, I have no idea where Casey Kasem gets this stuff. Which is why whenever a tape of Casey Kasem getting upset leaked, everyone wanted to hear it. It punctured the Pat Pat universe that Casey Kasem inhabited. This is a god- last goddamn time I want somebody who uses fucking brain to not come out of a goddamn record 
that is, uh, that, that's up-tempo, and I gotta talk about a fucking dog dying. I mean, Casey Kasem's not wrong. The dead dog out of the upbeat song. What if the song was Afternoon Delight? What if it was Kung Fu Fighting? It doesn't matter. As a radio professional, I could tell you, that's just a bit jarring. But what was more jarring is Casey Kasem, Shaggy from Scooby-Doo, going nuts like that. They said, no, we, we'd like you to read the, the other character, Shaggy. I said, oh, okay, well, uh, what is it you want? And uh, he said, well, come up with something. And uh, what I came up with was, Scoobo, buddy, old friend, old pal, it's me, <laughs> your friend Shaggy. So, Casey Kasem, probably not a legend, definitely not a great DJ, but a constant companion for so many of us there, along with the soundtrack to our lives. Up next, how Casey Kasem influenced the most common sentence written on Match.com. And now, social media, dating sites, nearly half of the self-descriptions begin with the phrase, I'm down to earth. That was started by Casey Kasem. As Casey said, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. Keep your feet on the ground. That's down to earth, right? No, okay. So it's not, but I don't even know what that phrase is. It's like uplift-ish. I will give the man his legacy. I will give the man his catchphrase. Maybe I should now go out with, employ podia terrestrialism while endeavoring toward the firmament. That doesn't quite have the ring. Hold on. Maintain earthbound contact while simultaneously grasping for luminous spheres of plasma held together by their own gravity. And now, it's the Australian megagroup's fifth time in the countdown, but the first that confuses mass nouns and counting nouns in a song title. Here's Air Supply with two less lonely people in the world. This long-distance dedication is going out for you, Casey. I was down, my dreams were wearing thin When you lost, where do you And that's it. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate's podcast. Andrea, could you play Boom, 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 Let's Go Back to My Room? It would mean so much to me. And you can make me feel right. And making his debut in the countdown, Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate's podcasts. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. Hundreds of reviews up. 11 don't like us or just like us a little. That's okay. It doesn't really bother me. I like the hundreds that do. We're also on, I'm going to say SoundCloud. SoundCloud's a great way to listen. We're the Slate Daily Podcast. Did you know that? That is true. You can get our email. We will send it to you. Go to slate.com slash gist email for that. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us at thegist at slate.com. Keep your finger on the back 15 seconds button and your comportment forgiving. And thanks for listening. 